Welcome to episode four of Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli. And this is John Carson. And today we're going to be talking about Kiss Alive, the album that put Kiss on the map and uh, the album that arguably without uh, Kiss would be a minor footnote in rock history. Because at the time this album came out, they'd released three studio albums in about a year and a half, and they hadn't sold that much. Not a single album had gone gold. They were financing their tour on their manager's American Express card. They were all in a lot of debt, and uh, this was kind of a Hail Mary pass. The record label was in trouble. They had just released a Johnny Carson live album, that right, which I tried to find on the YouTube today to listen to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was totally a huge disaster for them. And mm. uh, so they kind of went back to square one. They got the guy to engineer this album. Uh, they recorded it four different nights, um, four different cities. And they got Eddie Kramer, who did the original Kiss demos, uh, and had previously worked with Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix to be the live engineer. And um, so, right off the bat, your impressions of a live one. Well, this is the album that I bought, um, or actually my parents bought to me for Christmas in first grade, so 1976, so I think the album's about a year old. Um, and it's the, it sounds so much better than the first three albums. Um, it's, everything is stepped up a notch, you know, in terms of tempo. Um, it seems to be a lot more fluid and I don't know if that's because a lot of it is more, spent more time rehearsing or playing it over and over again, but it seems to just flow together better. Things sound a lot louder where they're supposed to. There's a lot more, um, and there's just a lot more energy in it. And I know that that's what, you know, was their big criticism before with their first three albums was you guys don't sound like your live shows. Right. Um, and so they were able to put out this, which sounded like, you know, they sounded like when they were live. And again, like I didn't, um, th- like this is my introduction to Kiss. I think this is just about everybody's introduction to Kiss to some degree. Who becomes a fan? I mean, I guess you had the first three, but did you have a live before the first three, or did you start with the first three? No, no, I got a live later. So my actually, okay. my introduction was to the first three studio albums. But um, I would agree with with your assessment. This is a band that's been playing two hundred plus shows a year uh, for eighteen months straight. They've been, you know, either on tour or they've been in a recording studio. So. You know, this they sound like a seasoned band now that has been playing together for a long time. And Peter Chris and Ace Frehley are really at the peak of their playing ability. Um, and, you know, Gene and Paul are, are 100% committed in terms of uh, their performances and what they're doing. Um so I think this album, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's sound quality. Everything is consistent. Not that there was a ton of extraneous uh, studio fluffery to to lose on those first three albums, but you know the piano on Nothing to Lose is gone. Um, 
I think what happened was a lot of kids had seen this band live and been blown away by them and then maybe picked up a studio album and the studio albums comparatively sounded rather tepid and polite and staid and well they sound like they have a metronome behind them yeah that's the that's the one thing that i've noticed whenever i've recorded before and i mean i'm by no means any you know musician you know but i have recorded albums and one of the things that always seems to kill it is that that you know you're like i gotta stay in time and follow that metronome you know what i mean and that's what those first three albums sound like, that they're being they're trying to be completely professional about it the whole time. Now, I would argue that if you put a metronome up to against everything that they played on the live one, it still all fits and it's all right. You know yeah. what I mean? They don't they don't, you know, <clears throat> like, you, well, you've been in bands, you know, the, the drummer that's the truck falling down the hill too fast, you know, and he speeds up as you're going along and that kind of stuff. There's no real example of that in the live one. Um but I don't, I don't know why that is, but it just does. The first three albums sound like they're trying for sort of a technical precision. Yes. Um, whereas a live one sounds like they aren't really trying anymore. They're just hitting it and even, you know what I mean? But I mean, either way, either one is fine. There's no mistakes in either one. You know, the first three albums versus a live, but a live doesn't feel like it's being held by something else, you know what I mean? By you know, and my example is when you got to follow that metronome, and it's just one, you know, little bit of tempo off, and still it feels slow to you, you know. Whereas everything in a live one feels like it's the exact perfect speed it should be. Yeah, yeah. Now I don't know that the first three albums were actually recorded with metronomes. Um, I don't know that wasn't necessarily the vogue at the time, but but the effect was the same. They were definitely being very conscious not to speed up and uh, not to ever be racing, you know, the beat and things like that. Um, so, so basically what you have is in effect a greatest hits album where all the songs sound better sonically and the band is playing them better. Um, and now you, you actually have a real live souvenir uh, for anybody that's seen the band in concert and enjoyed it that they could actually take it and go to their friends okay this is what i was talking about this is the sonic equivalent to what i experienced when i saw them live whereas before the studio albums were not um so okay so they now there is some controversy right because depending on who you talk to who worked on the album uh whoever you talk to will give you a different answer as to whether or not this is really a live album and to what extent. Right. Eddie Kramer said that it wasn't, and Peter Chris said that it wasn't, and then they eventually said, no, that's not true, actually. The only things that are real on the album are Peter Chris's drums and vocals, and the rest is all overdubbed. But yeah, then no, the rest I... of the band says, I don't know, is that what you've heard? I don't know. I've actually read some things, too, where Eddie Kramer has talked about we even did fixes on the drums. We figured ways to go out and like overdub the drums too. So, you know, Peter Chris denies that. Um, then again, I've seen Eddie Kramer give examples about sort of the, the types of fixes that they did. And, you know, it's been very subtle things like when Pete, Paul's voice cracked, they would overdub a fix of that. You know, when uh, mm -hmm. guitar was out of tune or a guitar dropped, I mean, you know, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that the band was 
performing at a very, very high level of energy. And they were constantly moving and jumping around and running around. And, you know, especially back then, those Gibson guitars they were playing uh, went out of tune really fast, you know. So it's, it's very likely that there would be no live performances they did, no matter how tight, which the guitars would have held tune from the beginning of the concert to the end. Um, now, the, the flip side of that argument, however, is if you go back and you listen to bootlegs from that era, they don't sound remarkably different in terms of the playing quality and the overall sonics than a live one. I mean, obviously, a live one is better recorded um, and things like that, but it sounds like the same band. The performances sound very, very similar. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't begrudge them. I mean, you know, once you've played those songs that many times, you don't have that many, you know, you're not going to make that many technical mistakes when you're playing. But again, I can see where the guitars would go to tune. Yeah, and, um, and there are some... And I don't, I mean, if you're putting out a live album that you want to sell a million dollars, hell, I'd, I'd have done the whole thing. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to say, like, oh, this isn't a true live album, whatever. It's fine. It's a greatest hits package played at the tempo that they played these things live, so it's fine. I got no problem with it, but, you know. Yeah, now, unlike, is... unlike Alive 2, um, it is entirely possible that all of these songs were performed live because they were playing them all live uh, on the Dress to Kill tour. So the only, al- the only song on the album that they weren't doing consistently every night was Watching You. That kind of came and went. Um, oh, okay. You know, they were for, sometimes they were experimenting. They actually brought back, uh, supposedly, they brought back "Let Me Know." Um, oh, okay. Yeah, here and there. Although I wonder if, if that wasn't just people like look at the set lists and mix that up with "Let Me Go" rock and roll. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Okay. But uh, but they were even watching you. They were definitely playing live on certain dates. So you know. So okay. I think the other aspect of it is the entire package of the album kind of functions as a tour program almost for the band, right? I mean, you have right. this, this iconic cover picture where Gene Simmons looks like something from Hell Incarnate and right. you know, uh, yeah. the, rest of the rest of the band is in kind of classic rock and roll pose. Although it's funny, Ace rarely ever held his guitar in that position. Um, you know, that was, it was a posed live photo, which is perhaps appropriate. Um, and, uh, and then you have the notes. Right. The notes on the inside. Yeah. Right. And um, this is the first time that they really, uh, did anything on the albums that spoke to, uh, the characters that were sort of inferred by their makeup. Um, now supposedly the notes are in some of their handwriting, um, but they didn't actually write the notes themselves. They were written for them by some of the people in the publicity department. Uh, really? Okay, because the um, Paul Stanley book maintains that he felt that he came off as supposedly bisexual because he referred to everybody as lovers. Okay. Um, well, you know that, I mean? that may be. I mean, you know, they were kind of trying to play that up with Paul at the time. There was a lot of talk about his androgyny and it was something that uh that they were conscious of and i think that they didn't want to push it too far because they didn't think it was gonna 
playing Peoria, you know, there's there's a version of uh, Do You Love Me on the Destroyer album where his vocals are very consciously um, exaggerated in, in what would be like the stereotypical um, effeminate gay man's voice. And okay. they, uh, okay. they uh, went and redid and, and changed that. <laughs> I think they thought that was a little bit much, even for, you know, like midland America in the 1970s to, to buy. Um, now, Paul may have written his note. Gene may have written their note. I, I seriously doubt Ace and Peter did theirs just because, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem like something that would have been in their wheelhouse even back then. Oh, really? Okay. You don't think they were right? I mean, I don't. Um, I don't think that either of them had the the um, patience or disposition. You know, particularly Peter. You know, I, I remember reading an interview with um, Paul questioning to what extent Peter actually wrote his book. You know, he goes to the best of my knowledge. I don't think the guys ever read a book. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I didn't. Uh, I mean, I know. I I see. Gene and Paul is the smarter ones in the band, always. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, almost to a debilitating effect. Yeah. Um, well, Ace is kind of the the idiot savant, right? I mean, he's the guy that... Um, I mean, if you listen to his phrasing on this album, it's remarkable, like, how from beat to beat and bar to bar, um, you know, every one of his solos is like a mini-composition, and just the the cadence of what he's playing he's playing you know both to and against the the beat and yeah yeah, the I guitars that are playing, yeah you know and mm -hmm. it's really it's really remarkable because i mean it's such a a call and response within itself and he you know it's it's you know without his lead guitar on the album i i think you lose so much of the the firepower uh that makes this a classic rock and roll record yeah, agreed. Well, he, yeah, I think that he adds absolutely a lot to it, um, particularly now that he's allowed to be as distorted and as loud as he wants to be. You know, it's not as, um, it's a lot heavier. You know? Yeah, the guitars are way more distorted than, say, on yeah, the debut album. exactly, sure. like super heavy. Like, I'm, my notes here, I got, she has the heaviest riffs in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? And stuff like that. And, um, yeah, no, agreed. It definitely, he definitely saves it in yeah. a lot of ways. And okay. even Peter, you know, I mean, he's playing his ass off on this thing. There's just like tons of fills and, you know, he's got that old school jazz background that kind of grounds the band in some roots that a lot of other bands from that period didn't have. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, even the solo isn't as boring as it usually drum solos are for bands. Right. You know what I mean? But again, they add a crap ton of reverb on it. Yeah, it's not which reverb. Which only actually. just occurred to me now, listening to it, you know, for like, you know, I don't know how long it's the last time I listened to it, but yeah, there's tons of reverb on it, well, which make it sound great. There's reverb like and there's there's flange on it too. Okay, um, all right. And then, there, then what's interesting is, I, you know, I noticed they put flange on the audience. Mm -hmm. The audience clapping and stuff has flange on it, which is an interesting choice. Um, you know, presumably that's, I mean, you know, you're not really recreating something that would happen at a concert there. Um, you're going for kind of an effect. 
But now what I've read is that they actually had tape loops of like the crowd recorded at Super Bowls and things like that up on uh, multiple uh, reel-to-reels. And they would kind of mix those in and out along with the sound to get right. that. The thing I read today was that it was a reel-to-reel that was literally stretched out across the room using microphone stands so that there'd be no repeat right. sound. Right, And right. so there was like 30 feet of tape of just crowd noise running the entire time while they were mixing it or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is impressive. And again, you know, is it really live? But it's live enough. Yeah. <laughs> now, again, you know, you listen to it, and yeah, it sounds huge, and it sounds like the crowd is super enthusiastic, but if you listen to those bootlegs, yeah, the crowd mm-hmm. sounds kind of much, pretty much the same, you know? I don't, I don't, I mean, for everything that they did, you have to question to what extent did they need to do it, you know? Um, I, I wonder about the, uh, the crowd chanting in unison, we want Kiss. You know, uh-huh. was that something that was organic or did they make it happen just for the album? Certainly every KISS concert I've been to since then, because people have heard Alive 1 and Alive 2, the fans have spontaneously recreated that. Now, this these, these tours, i got to make sure I understand this, these tours, they're still essentially opening acts, right? Um, not, or... by, not by Dress to Kill. Um, by Dress okay. to Kill, they're able to headline... Um, Four and five thousand seaters, you know, Long Beach Arena, uh, Detroit. They're able to headline, uh, Cobo Hall, sell it out, you know. So yeah, what happened mm-hmm. by this time, by the third album, they they were still trying to get opening slots, but uh, they kept on getting kicked off tours because they were upstaging the headliner. And you know, right. if, if you think about it, would you really want to go on after this opening band that has all of this? firepower and bombast and you know theatrics and it would be a hard act to follow yeah well of course it would be yeah but again i mean there's what is like ace fairly was saying most most people when they were opening a lot of the audience would be laughing at them at first thinking how ridiculous they are and then of course you know they'd say that three songs in they'd be one over i don't know how true that is but um, well, because I mean, this is good. I was just gonna say that was their reputation, right? Is that you put us mm-hmm. on any show opening for any band, and by the end of it, we, you know, even if they don't know what to make of us at first, we will win them over to the point where when they first auditioned for Neil Bogart and they came out um, and were playing at the loft, and Neil Bogart was just kind of standing there, mouth agape. Gene literally ran up to him and, you know, grabbed both of his hands and started clapping them together for him, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, So so, I mean, and to be honest, I mean, there's only one time I've ever seen them perform where I didn't have that feeling that they were, you know, that they were doing that, where I sort of felt like they were just going through the motions and weren't even really working to try to win over their crowd. Um, and that was, and that was, was that? Sad, that was um, when they, they headlined uh, the, the um, kiss FM stadium show in Los Angeles. And they only played like three songs and you know, it was, it was sad because oh, was that at like 2000 when they put the music, the, I'm sorry, they put the makeup back on and they're sort of retreading themselves or whatever. Well, I'm I'm trying to think of what the lineup was. I I want to say it was 
it wasn't a complete original lineup, but I can't remember if it was with Tommy Thayer and Peter Chris or if it was with Ace Frehley and, and Eric Singer. But um, it just, you know, the, the, I can tell you from the audience perspective, you had a lot of 15, 16 year old kids that had heard about the legends. And then Kiss came out and they sort of, you know, they, they sort of, you sort of felt like they did what they were contractually obligated to do. Um, but they didn't even put, put much effort into thinking about what songs they were playing. I mean, they played Love Gun, which, you know, in a three song set for 15 and 16 year olds, is that really the song to win them over? I don't know. Um, so anyhow, anyhow, back to when, when they were incapable of not blowing the audience away. So this album's divided up into, into sides, obviously. So kicks off, it's essentially the track listing in the order in which they were playing it back then. Um, right. So Deuce, Strutter, Got to Choose, Hotter Than Hell, and Firehouse. Um, okay. So Now, do they introduce the siren in Firehouse here in the live album? I don't seem to remember it on the first time I heard it. Yes, the, the siren. Other. Well, the... Um, yeah, the siren is is on a live one, right? But it's not on the original recording, correct? Or is it on the original? I don't believe it's on the original uh, studio okay. recording now. Um, and you know, they there's that extended moment there. Presumably, that's when Gene was breathing fire during the show yeah, at that yeah, point. Yeah. Um, that's what my guess was. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, I don't know that there's too much to say about side one other than you know it's a greatest hits, and like we said, everything sounds way better than it did on the studio records. Um, now, side two, I know you were not a fan of Nothing to Lose uh, as a studio cut, but here it really has, again, ten times the energy that it did in the studio. Right, it's a lot more energetic, yeah. It, de it definitely works. I don't hate it. I mean, this is... That's always the weird thing with me and Kiss is I always go like, oh, I cannot be in my 40s and still be a Kiss fan, right? Or even when I was in my 20s, I was like, I cannot have listened to all this alternative music and punk rock and all that kind of stuff and still be a Kiss fan and still take it seriously. And then, boom, put it on, and it just hits me right in the gut. You know what I mean? That yeah. I just And that's, that's that alive sound, that, you know, <clears throat> that very fluid, exciting, energetic, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is it. Although, to yeah. be fair, most of those alternative bands that you listen to were KISS fans, too, so... I know. Oh, no, 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 I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying that it's like, you know, I mean, can I sit through... I, I'm not saying that I was ever not a fan, but I, I always thought there was going to be some moment in my life where I was going to fall out of love with them, and I just never did, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, you can listen to every single Pixies album and still listen to a live one, and you're still the same person, you know, so... <laughs> but, um, yeah, agreed. So, sorry, yeah, so that is a Greatest Hits album. There's a lot more energy, Nothing to Lose definitely sounds a lot more exciting than the studio recording, which I I didn't like at all. I yeah. thought it was kind of silly. So now towards the end of Side 2, they start to, uh, the set list kind of gives way from three, three and a half minute songs. Now we're starting to get into the heavier, more extended instrumental riff-based songs, right? So... You have she watching you a uh, hundred right, thousand they have all years. This, they have all the scary stuff. Yeah. They start with Parasite and she. These are all sort of what, for lack of a better word, are sort of my D&D &D songs. You know what I mean? Watching yeah, you stuff. a thousand years. Yeah. Um, know, they're sort of the spookier side of the man. Yeah. And it all works really well. 
I would argue that if there's one cut that hasn't necessarily aged that well for a couple of reasons, um, it's a hundred thousand years. Uh huh. Well, again, why why do you say that? Okay, not... well, because you know they don't feature Gene's bass solo really, right? Uh, they do. Okay. They, you know, he does plays a couple notes, but it's not an, what he would have played to be spitting blood. Ace's guitar solo is featured on uh, the end of She, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is it Parasite? No, I think it's She. Huh. But even that, no, is... it's a false. It's She, and then they have a false ending. Right, right. And then they go into uh, this crazy long, you know, ending where he keeps sort of speeding up and speeding up and speeding up, and then they go into sort of a trash can ending. Yeah. Um, at the end. Now, so, even, yeah. even that is a truncated version of the guitar solo that he was doing live. Okay. Um, so, so you know, they're doing just enough, just in a, so, a, a nod to say, okay, this is, you know, you remember you saw us, this is when Gene breathed fire, this is when he spat blood, this is when Ace did his solo and the guitar smoked. But then you come to 100,000 years, and you get the full Peter Chris drum solo the track lasts, it's the longest track on the album. It's 12 minutes and 12 seconds. Um, you know. Well, it's got the drum solo, and then it's got the stage raps. It's got the big uh, extended stage rap, right. So, right. so two aspects. One, I think, you know, did they need to include that much of the drum solo? Could they have cut that down a little bit? You know, arguably the album loses a little momentum here. Um now the story is is that apparently Peter Chris says you leave it all in or I'm quitting the band, which is probably true. He 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 said something similar as a threat during there was a guitar solo or a drum solo in uh, Strange Ways on the Hotter Than Hell album that went on forever, and he said if you cut it out, I quit, and they cut it out and he didn't quit. But um, <laughs> okay, so so right. yeah, I believe that. Um, and then and then Paul Stanley's. Uh, rap to the audience which you know that's the other aspect that you get with this album you didn't get with the studio albums is you get paul stanley as the preacher rock and roll front man um right which is an integral part of kiss you know which is the spirit and the attitude that goes along with all that um i think the part that hasn't aged well there is you know how many of you people like to party how many of you people like to get high Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, for sounds a little generic and a little uh, forced. That's <laughs> the best way to say it. But yeah. Well, also, just... also their audience back then was, you know, they were considered a dangerous band. They were still posing with women topless with their, you know, knives out and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But given, you know, three years later, four years later. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, they were very hyper-conscious about, uh, any positive references to drug use and things like that. You know, their audience was largely kids and, you know, flash forward another five, six years, they were doing anti-drug commercials for rock against drugs and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's a that is the reason why when they do 100,000 years uh, today, that portion of the rap is gone. Huh. 
They're so filthy, though. I mean, I remember <laughs> stage raps. You know what I mean? The you know, if there's a party in your pants and I'm coming, I mean, you know, well, I'll never forget hearing that at the, in the 19... tender age of thirteen. But go ahead, yeah. In the 1980s, yeah, they played that up. But now, I mean, if you go see them now, I mean, they, there's no, there's none of that. There's none of the forced. Uh, I went, just got back from the doctor's office and met the nurse, and there's no, there's no swearing. There's, you know, they've, they've consciously toned all that stuff down. Wow, I didn't even realize that. Okay. Oh yeah, it's a family-oriented show now, um, and. Uh, and so, but the one part of it that still works profoundly well uh, is is the part you know is the turnaround where he says, "Well, if you believe in rock and roll, right, say rock why and don't roll, you, I don't believe it, yeah, right. Why don't you stand yeah. up for what you believe in, right? Right. And if you listen mm -hmm. to the bootlegs, there's all kinds of variations on that turnaround where mm -hmm. uh, they would play certain places, particularly in the South, where security was very heavy. And they would be, you know, told like, oh, you know, you, and Paul would say things like, they can tell you not to stand in the aisles, but they can't tell you not to stand in your seats. Let's go, you know, mm -hmm. um, things like that. So, so that aspect of it is aged well. Okay, so now we have uh, Black Diamond, mm -hmm. which sounds huge. Right, it's that cans in it, which apparently they mix in the sound of a cannon to get the flashbox sound or whatever. Yeah, that's probably that's probably something that's added, um, and I think that that's the kind of thing that bit them, um, you know, when they were trying to record a live three and they were using the real life explosions. Those things are so loud that if you've got a limiter going across the entire bus, um, it's going to down. pull down all, all all the sound and stuff, and you can kind of hear that at the beginning of a live three when the first explosions hit you know the music kind of drops down um but yeah so that's probably uh that's probably an addition um then we've got four songs worth of encores essentially is what they did um which it's interesting to think of the first encore being rock bottom mm -hmm. because even though the the intro that they play is slightly truncated from the studio version. I think it's about half as long. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's an odd choice to come out and play, you know, your first encore being essentially like uh, an, you know, artsy, uh, clean guitar picked kind of uh, thing. So that, these are the four. Uh, so Rock Bottom, Cold Gin, Rock and Roll All Night, and Let Me Go Rock and Roll are both uh, are all the encores. Right, wow. so they would have closed the set with Black Diamond, and now I don't know if they would have done really four encores. They probably would have done two encores, right? They probably would have done Rock at Bottom and Cold Gin and then come back out and done Rock and Roll Night Let Me Go Rock and Roll. Um, right, oh, okay, so you're saying, all right. Yeah, um, but it's interesting. Rock Bottom is a song that they actually played around with on... Uh, this tour, I think, where they played around with opening with it. Yeah. And they did that once and apparently went over like a lead balloon and they said, nah, never again. Huh, but it still works towards the end. Here. It still works as an encore, right, which is, is, mm -hmm. is odd. Um, and then, then you have Cold Gin, which is, mm -hmm. is funny because, you know, I've read uh, interviews with Ace Fraley and he's talked about, you know, as much as he has a reputation for drinking to excess and being an alcoholic 
drinking cold gin was never his particular brand of alcohol of taste. Um, you know, he said, yes, he said, I tried it once. It tasted terrible. You know? uh-huh. Um, and you know, Gene is singing the song. He's never been drunk a day in his life. Uh, it's funny that that is one of their biggest songs. And I mean, obviously the song is more about a dysfunctional relation than it is about getting, you know, getting drunk, but they, then they do introduce it by saying, who likes taste alcohol? Do you like tequila? Do you like whatever? I forget what the other one. And then yeah, vodka finally, and orange juice. and Vodka and orange juice. Yeah, I know. What an odd pick, but okay, yeah, sure. Well, it's almost that like is... Paul's like <laughs> trying to think of, you know, manly types of hardcore drinks that mm-hmm. the, even the band themselves back then, I mean, Ace was a big beer drinker. I don't think he was drinking tequila or vodka and orange juice or any of that stuff. Um, you know, so it, it, in some ways it is a song that's more about, yeah, the image that they're projecting than any sort of underlying reality. Um, and also that rap, you know, has, has metamorphosed over time. You know, there was definitely a time when it became, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and getting fucked up, but just make sure that you've got a designated driver so that... Right, yeah, yeah, I remember that at the Lick It Up show when I was a kid, too, yeah. Yeah. So make sure you're safe, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, right. And now it's it's not even, they don't even bother with any of that. It's just sort of played as a song with, you know, when you're down in the dumps, you need something to get you up, and it's much more much more symbolic than, than anything I think that's, that's taken literally at this point. Right. Not that it even was back then. Right. Yeah. Huh. That's, it's funny to think of Kiss as a family show, but yeah, I guess it is now. Okay. Well, they went through this um, whole period that was great where, um, a few, couple tours back where, uh, they said, you know, let me see, you know, all the kids, you know, all the kids out there, you know, hold them up. Members of the, you know, newest members of the Kiss Army, you know, and he goes, let me tell you something. I'm going to make a promise to you tonight. We have been there for your parents through the years, and we're going to be there for you, too, you know. Wow. And it really, even just saying it, kind of, I get a little thicklepped. Tears me up a little, man. I know. Yeah, Yeah, thanks, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. It's true. You know, they were, Uh and they they have been, and they continue to be. So, okay. So now we got two more songs. We got the rock and roll national anthem, which is this is really the first top twenty hit song they ever had. Was this version of rock and roll all night? Right. This is the single that comes from this. It charts at number eleven. Goes higher apparently in Canada. Yeah. Which, if you look at the chart position, all these bands always do better in Canada. Yeah, it was like a number like, three album in Canada. Yeah, it was huge in Canada. <laughs> Just like, totally bizarre because you think Canada's much more polite than we are and wouldn't like this, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if they're exporting us, you know, Triumph and Rush, but I don't know. But yeah, so, um, well, again, this song is, it's hard for me to pick apart this song anymore because I've heard it so many, I said that the last time I listened to it, I'm so sick of this song, you know right, what I mean? Right, That it's like, like I've told you before, every freaking Friday, right before the electric lunch comes on DVD and it still comes on, you know, they still have the electric lunch on from our childhood. Um, they always start with, you know, um, how you, you know, it's Friday, you in skies, and then they play this, you know. Right, right. So... 
Yeah, it, and uh, it's, I mean, I know what you're saying. It's kind of like listening to uh, ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long on the radio right. with a fresh mind. You've heard the song a million times, and your your mind kind of just goes right past it as it's being played. Right, there's only so many times you can point out to your 13-year-old son, look, that's an actual walking bass line. That's pretty complicated for these kinds of songs back then. Right. You know, it's like you really can't. And it bears yeah. it bears noting that the entire song is played on the upbeat, which is again something that rock bands didn't really do back then. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to play that song correctly. Right, know, it's hard to get the one, two, three, four, nah, yeah. and play mm -hmm. it right on the 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 end of four instead of on the one. You know, right? I remember being taught that, and the teacher teaching us that. Yeah, you know, that was huh? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I you know I've seen lots of. Uh, you know, bad bar bands try to cover it and and fail because of that. Right, but then you don't want to be the guy that points it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, 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 guys, that's on the forehand. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, so it's hard. But again, it is. It's a lot just like the rest of the album. It's a lot better tempo. It's a lot more fluid. Um, there's a lot more going on in it. So it's definitely better than the recorded version. Yeah. 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 And then they close out with Let Me Go Rock and Roll, which... Which doesn't suck this time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, now, so it, now it's extended. I mean, it's almost like the... Compared to the version that was on uh, the studio record, it makes it sound like a demo because now you've got extended instrumental breaks and guitar interplay that's not on the studio version at all. Um, and you right. know, much like they added the guitar solo to Rock and Roll Night, not on the studio version. The guitar solo, outro solo for Cold Gin, not on the studio version. Um, you okay. know, they extend all these songs. Uh, they they let them breathe. They've evolved as live entities unto themselves. And you know, they've they didn't have time when they were recording three studio albums in eighteen months. I think to fully work out all of the song, the potential of all of the songs. Um, now they do. Right. Now they can, yeah. When they're playing live, they can experiment more, have met, uh, <clears throat> make more mistakes that will then add to these kind of ideas of keeping it going. So yeah, agreed. It definitely, yeah. The songs are more fleshed out in this. It's, it's all the greatest hits. The tempo's better. Um, it's just a better album, you know? Yeah. yeah. So this thing comes out, it goes gold, it goes, you know, interestingly, RAA has it certified as gold. They don't have it certified as platinum, double platinum. You know, I've read certain things where they say this thing is like six times platinum at this point. Um, but, you know, there's some squirrely stuff that goes on with the RIAA certifications. Like, it has to do with whether or not the record company is willing to pay them to be officially certified and stuff. Um, so, at any rate, it, it definitely goes platinum and double platinum and triple platinum and probably much beyond that. I mean, this album is kind of a cultural phenomena. And even even if you take into account that because it's a double album, it's actually selling half of what's required for a studio album to do that, right? Because they count each disc as a sale. Oh, okay. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, so yeah. really All if right. they say it went six times platinum, it probably sold three million copies. Um, it's still one of the biggest selling albums of the year. Right. 
of the lifetime. I mean, you know, it's net, Rolling Stone even puts it in its list of most influential albums, and so does Guitar World puts it like number three as most influential guitar album. Even um, who's that bitter Rolling Stones music critic that never likes anything? Uh, Lester Bangs. Yeah, yeah, I think he called it the greatest rock and roll album of all time, or the second right. greatest, or whatever. Yeah, and and Chris Agow from um, the Village Voice even says like he does, you know, it's the greatest sounding sludge I've ever heard, or something like that. You know what I mean? Like he he even likes it, right? Um, and um, someone else, yeah, everybody likes it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> even Pitchfork, it's Pitchfork. The um, they're sort of the you know the elitist um, punkers. You know what I mean? I mean, they're a website, essentially, but they, um, they're like a huge music clearinghouse for different bands. You know what I mean? Like, if you yeah. want to find your little niche or whatever. The that's, hip new you know, thing, yeah. Right. They, um, even they say it's, you know, one of the greatest albums of all time. So, it definitely is loved by critics and by fans. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this album. No, and it, it saved them. Uh, it put them on the map. It actually established the fact that they were going to have a career. It took them from being openers to, you know, who could headline in certain select spots uh, to being arena headliners that were selling out their tours. And it set them up perfectly to do an album that was a complete 180 from anything on this album or anything that they had done before. And in the process, they almost completely sabotaged their career and lost all their fans. How? Wait, what are you saying? I'm saying that uh, Destroyer was a near disaster for them. It didn't sound anything like anything on the first three studio albums or anything on Alive One. And uh, they got incredibly lucky that uh, the single Beth hit the way that it did because... Uh, Initially, although it's considered a classic today, Destroyer managed to completely alienate all of their hardcore fans. No kidding, I didn't know that. Wow, I guess I didn't read that far in the book. I didn't. Um, I thought they didn't. <laughs> I thought they were cruising until the Elder. But, no, um... no. There's been a lot of bumps in the road along the way. <laughs> well, wait, is it what? What's what are the albums coming from here? There's Destroyer, and then what comes after that? Unmasked or something? Well, no. So it... you have Destroyer, you have Rock and Roll Over, and you have Love Gun. Okay. And that's pretty All much right. the classic. You know, uh, when people talk about the classic era of Kiss, it's really those six studio albums and Alive One and Alive Two. Okay. All right. And then after that, it's all downhill. Well, sort of. Until no, but then until they go to is... their '80s metal stuff, which is the stuff I actually really liked. Yeah. Or what it reintroduced me to it. You know. Yeah. Um, okay, I didn't realize that. All right, well, I, I have to listen to Destroyer now. Well, Destroyer, will be, that'll be an interesting one. We'll have to think about who we want to have as a guest for the Destroyer one. Yeah, we should. That is a good call. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I, okay. Well, I guess are we done? Are we done talking about a live one here? Uh, I think so. Unless you've got anything you want to add. No, I don't. I mean, there was nothing really. Um, the thing that interested me the most that I wanted, I couldn't find copies of the notes though. I don't have a version. I don't have the vinyl record anymore. Okay. So I couldn't find version of the, of the notes. So I wanted to read those, but um, or not read it. You know, go over them. But you already explained that you figured that Gene and Paul wrote theirs, and then that was it. 
Yeah, I mean the notes are they're they're interesting. You know, they're they're a bit silly, but I think they they helped to actually play upon the the vague notion of characters in the makeup that they had kind of touched upon at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So things were things were finally looking up for our heroes. They were finally rock and roll stars after a long slog on the road of a year and a half, two years. Um, but uh, things were about to get interesting with Destroyer. Okay, well, I, yeah, I didn't realize that Beth is what saved them. I thought Destroyer was considered one of their great classic albums or whatever. Well, it is now. But It is now. It was not then. Oh, okay. All right, cool. All right, well, thanks for talking to me about Live One, man. That's Yeah. And I can't wait to listen to Destroyer now. Sounds good. All right, well, join us next week for uh, Episode 5 of Rock Album Analysts. We'll talk all about all things Destroyer. Destroyer.